So just remember, we are having a, a semi-sensitive topic that we're talking about. So if, if you're a little, your child is a little older and you want them to go, it is, it is fine. They can, they can help out with the kids. But let us stand now, turn, open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. You never thought you would ever hear that at a church. No, I'm joking. Uh, here we are, the Song of Solomon. We'll be reading multiple verses. It's in my worship guide here, and I forgot where I was going. So here we are. Uh, we're going to be starting in uh, chapter 1. Verse 4, and then going to 2, verse 7, then 5, verse 1, then 8, verse 6. And I know it's confusing, and I will explain most of it. Most of it. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. 2-7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. 5, verse 1, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Chapter 8, verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Almighty and gracious God, would you open our hearts to receive your word and to be transformed by it, by your love, so that we would be more like you. And that in our lives, we would reflect your goodness, love, and character to all those who are around us. Lord, we need you now to worship you and to know you more, to confess and repent of our sexual brokenness and our need for healing. Please, Lord, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You bring me to my knees. You make me testify. Oh, can a sinner change his ways? Open up your gates because I can't wait to see the light. And right here is where I want to stay because your sex brings me to paradise. Bruno Mars is singing about this. Yes, people, people are like locked out of paradise. Is he really opening a sermon with that? Yes. Why? Because if you look at your top 40 and you play it over and over again, you will realize that this topic kind of dominates people's thinking over and over again. It has a way of getting into our lives, messing with our thinking so that it dominates everything. You see, we all have a longing, a desire to be needed. It is a desire that God has given us. To want someone, to be with someone. And it is not wrong or bad. We should not necessarily stuff it down and hide it, but we need to know where and how to direct it correctly. Uh, at one time, my kids were real little and they had a wiffle ball bat. My son decided it looked like a lightsaber and then proceeded to wield it in such a way that uh, it was uh, harmful and frightening to his sisters, okay? Here's the deal. Was there anything wrong with the wiffle ball bat? No. 
It was the way that he was using it as a lightsaber and pretending that his sisters were Sith Lords or something like that. Okay? See, and that's the thing about sex. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with the desire for it. It just depends on how we're aiming it. And where's it going? What is the object of it? What do we hope to get out of it? You see, and what Song of Solomon does is it gives us a picture of radical commitment in a world that doesn't like commitment. It, it, gets, it, it, is to, to, it, it is an affront, and it tells us to do something differently. In our world, we say, oh, you need to be sexually free. You need to be able to be free to do whatever you want. No one can have an authority on you, especially, especially those curmudgeon church people. Oh, my gosh, telling me what to do with my private life. And that's the thing, you know, we start to talk about things like sex and different things like that. They can only be private. They should only be private. How dare you bring it up? But yet, we seem to sing about it. We see it on Game of Thrones. I know you guys watch Game of Thrones. You know, and we see it everywhere. And so it dominates our culture, but yet, we never talk about it. You can see it, listen to it, hear it on the radio. Oh, but don't talk about your own life. How dare you? You know, that's like politics. You know, don't touch that subject either. Ah. And so we're kind of standoffish to it, right? And all of a sudden, we're all, you know, puritanical about it. And that's the thing. A lot of people are also saying, ah, you see, that's the problem. This culture. You see, you Christian people, you've, you've kind of had this puritanical holdover for a number of years. And so, you know, we should be free to talk about it, but it's, it's your, your rules and regulations. You guys think sex is dirty that, that causes us to never talk about it. And so, therefore, we feel a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, and that's all you ever do with it. But is that true? And the Sol- Song of Solomon saying, absolutely, it is not true. Check this out. Okay? And I know some of you... They're like, well, it's an allegory for, for Jesus and the church. Uh, you could even read this in Charles Spurgeon's uh, Morning and Evening. I like Charles Spurgeon. But, uh, bro, come on. It, it, not half that stuff isn't about Jesus and the church, okay? It, it, it's meant to tell us this one thing. Sex in the right context is good. And Charles Spurgeon just made it about Jesus. Can you see Jesus here? And I'm all like, no, I cannot see Jesus in this text. I'm sorry, you're wrong. But I digress, okay? And so, you know, people, people uh, and even, we have to also say, though, that in Christianity, maybe we've had an unhealthy response. We don't talk about it. We treat it as if it's dirty, as if it's wrong. You know, we shy away from it, never, ever wanting to talk about it. And I'm going to say that's a wrong approach as well. That's a wrong approach. And a purity culture uh, in, in, within churches uh, it basically had taught at one point that if you have messed up sexually, or if you will mess up sexually, you will end up on God's frontage road and not on his highway, into which there is never, ever another on-ramp back onto God's highway. So if you mess up, or it, was, it was don't mess up because you will be on the frontage road and, and you will not be living God's way. It'll be secondary. That's the way they taught it. And is that what the message of, of Song of Solomon? Is that what it shows us? Is that the message of the Bible? No. The message of the Bible is telling us that there is a great God who's in love with us. 
that it's stronger than death, His love. And will come at us at 100 miles an hour and won't stop for anything to come and get us. And that frontage road, come on. God's love is greater and stronger than that. And so what in the world is Song of Solomon doing in the Bible? So let's look at the text and figure out what in the world is it saying. So uh, here's a good way to kind of break down the, this book of the Bible that at times is perplexing. Of course, it's poetry and not even that. It's, a, it's a Jewish poetry, so it makes even less sense. And so there's also these like weird images. You guys, the biggest fear that you had when you saw that I was going to read this, that we're going to preach out of Song of Solomon is like, is he going to explain, explain the imagery? Because some of that is weird. I mean, we're talking like uh, flocks of mountain goats and stuff like that, and they're all there. What that means is that she has lovely teeth, and she has all of them. That's a good thing, okay? There's, there's some funny stuff. I can explain it. It's really weird. I spent an entire day in class listening to the guy who wrote the ESV study Bible notes explain every one of these. And I'm like, dude, for real? We don't need to know that. But anyway, I digress. So the Song of Solomon has a, has a nice little structure into which we can understand what the heck the author is saying. So first, you have point one if you're going to make a structure of it. And it is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That's called a title. Is that good? Cool. Title 1, verse 1. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 1 to 2.17, we see this yearning or this pining for each other. And then there's interjections by this chorus, a group called the Others. The ESV has helped you out by, say, by having she, others, he. Very helpful, right? Yes, those are very good. And then... In chapter three, or yeah, chapter three, verse one through six, three, there is what is known as a dream sequence. So it's poetry set in a dream. And how do I know this? You're like, oh, how do you know this, Vince? Well, it says, "On my bed at night." Huh? What do you do at bed at night? I don't know. I sleep, or sometimes I watch Netflix. But anyway, so I'm sleeping. But then there is this irrationality of it. Right? So she goes to sleep, you know, I'm sleeping, and she's yearning for her, her, her groom. Oh, he's knocking at the door. She jumps up, goes to the door, and he's gone. Where is she? Where is he? And then she runs out into the streets looking for her lover. Where is he? And they're all like, eh, go away. What's wrong with you? And then she wakes up again. She's like, what? She comes to in her dream. And in her dream, she's, all of a sudden, Solomon's coming. Solomon, what in the world is going on? Solomon's coming. All right, so you see how irrational it is? Anyone have, like, totally rational dreams? No, I don't. Why? There's always, like, devilish men chasing me, and, and uh, you know, I'm having to eat something weird or, or, you know, drink some bleach or something. I don't know. There's weird dreams. Yes. And so you see the irrationality, and so it's a dream sequence from chapter 3 to 6-3. And then, and so there's other places that you see it. There's a continuation in 5.2. It says, I slept, but my heart was awake. And then again, you have this sequence from 6.4 to 8.4 of them yearning for each other again. And then in 8.5 through 14, it is them being joined in marriage. And what I would say in chapter 6 is a kind of like a, a, a wrap up or a ceremony of their marriage. And you're like, oh, okay. 
So you got, you got a little structure here. But then there's the characters. There's the shepherd girl. Um, notice in, uh, in 1.8, uh, he says of her, the shepherd girl, the shepherdess, O beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flocks, flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. So she's a shepherd girl. And who is he? Well, in verse 7, she says, Tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. He's a shepherd. So the poem has a shepherd and a shepherdess. And then there's this weird chorus. Anyone else find it a chorus weird? It's poetry. Just live with it, okay? So the chorus says, We will exalt, exult and rejoice in you all, and we will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So they see these lovers, and they're yearning, and they're pining, and, and their desire for one another, and they say, it is good, it is beautiful. It is like the watching world saying, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. And they also then tell you later to be drunk on love. Get drunk on love. Be filled with it. See and look at them and go, ah, it's the way it was meant to be. The way it was meant to be. And then you, you kind of wonder, like, what is up with this Solomon character who shows up in chapter 4? Right? You know, so what is Solomon doing in the dream? So Solomon, I take to be an idealized figure of her shepherd boy, whom she loves. You know, he's the king, he's powerful, rich, famous, and then he sings over her this wonderfulness of, of who she is. And notice, though, if you notice in verse 4, uh, I mean, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. But notice what the boy had said in one fifteen. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. It's the same person. The same person. And so they are telling you that this Solomon is an idealized figure. Then there's this shadowy figure of the little sister, which is told, wait, you're young. Don't stir up love too early. So the right context for sex is within marriage, within a commitment. And much like uh, a fire, sex is good, but if you have it in the wrong context, it can burn your whole house down. Be careful. And so, what does Song of Solomon teach us about sex? It teaches us good, but it's dangerous. Sex is a powerful sign of covenantal commitment. And it is not to be taken lightly. It is a sign. So we're going to look at two ways the world frames the sexual discussion. And then a way that the Bible looks at sex. So first we're going to look at sex as a consumer good. Second, sex as expression of the person or expression of the self. And lastly, sex as a sign. So first, sex as a consumer good. Um, if you uh, watch TV with any regularity, you would know that you are uh, being shaped to be some sort of consumer. If you watch every new iPhone commercial, there is always new gadgets, gizmos, and a better phone every time telling you that you need something better, something greater. 
right? You go to every store and they say, we have lower prices than so-and-so. And so every way you are shaped to be a type of consumer, in a lot of ways, we have treated sex as the same thing. It's uh, kind of like you're hungry, you go to the store, get something, you have sexual desires, well, go and get it. Don't deny yourself, it's an appetite. And so we use it as a consumer good. Uh, we see the way we also market ourselves as a consumer good, especially on social media. Especially as a young pe person, you put particular photos of yourself in the right light. You make sure that you have the perfectly catered Instagram. You're always happy, never depressed. Things are always good. Look at all my friends. Look at all everything that I've ever done. And it, everything looks good that you're appealing and pleasing. And people will want you. People will like you in order that you can be consumed by another person. And that is the game we've been playing with sexuality, isn't it? And it isn't just our single friends that are doing this. It is all kinds of people. We also see it on things like online dating. We actually have to uh, look at how accurate someone's profile is because someone could be lying. I don't know if it's lying or if it's creative marketing. I don't know. And so, you know, but we also see this in the way that we, we look at things such as pornography, Pornography is something you consume, you can just click on the internet, we like to say it harms no one, it's okay, it doesn't hurt anyone, you know, and so we consume it. So much so that John Mayer in an interview with Playboy says this, Inter internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? I mean, it's got to. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I'd rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I've, uh, I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in hu actual human discovery. The best days of my life are, are, are when I've dreamed about a sexual encounter with someone I've already been with. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying this. I'd rather be at home consuming than having to do the work of real human connection. Of having to actually let someone know me. So sex is completely, you know, consumption. You could put out your best self out there and have no one know you. No one know you. And what is this cause? What is this problem when we see sex as kind of a consumer good? Well, it causes us to perform. You're always having to keep up your looks. You're always having to, to say the right thing. You're always at home second-guessing the things that you did say, the things that you wore that day. So-and-so saw me. What are they going to think of me? And we also do that in our married relationships too. We're always having to perform for the other person. Or we're always judging and comparing them against someone else, a mystical creature out there that we saw that was so beautiful and she would love me and think that I'm great. And so the person that I'm laying with, how dare she ever say or critique me? Doesn't she know that I'm the greatest person to ever live with? We do those things. We say those things. So when we see sex as a consumer good, we cause the other person to perform, and at the same time we're on this performance treadmill running it up. 
I can remember a, a, a couple came into my, my office a number of years ago, and she said, well, I had a hard pregnancy, and sex is difficult. My husband has been looking at pornography, and so next week I bring in the husband and we're talking about it. He's been looking at pornography over and over again that he's addicted to it. And then he starts saying real particular things. He's saying, I want sex, I need sex, and he starts talking about like sex as some kind of disembodied creature. As if his wife was a dispenser of sex. Because he has gotten into this notion in pornography and our consumer lifestyle is like the other person then is a consumer good for us. It's selfish. It's self-centered. And then I turned to the wife and said, what would it mean to you if your husband said, I want you? To want her. Not disembodied sex. Not to treat her as some sort of tool, but to want her. And both broke down crying and figured it out. They were treating each other as if they were cereal. A consumer good just to get what they wanted. They were just performing and it broke my heart. But in said Song of Solomon says this amazing thing says this little refrain over and over in it. It says, my beloved is mine and I am his. My beloved is mine and I am his. To belong to someone, to want someone, that's at the heart of it. And so it's not sex as consumption is what this, the, the story of the Bible is trying to put out. And so there's also this view of sex as expression. Sex as expression. Uh, there is a, I was once mystified, I went to a, I think it was an Airbnb, and I noticed that there was a spoon with a hole in it. Like a little tiny spoon with a hole in it. I'm like, what in the world is this good for? Right? I had no clue. No clue whatsoever. I'm like, it's not like I can get sugar out of it because all the sugar would come out. You know, and if I'm eating like cream of wheat and then it's going to like drip out, I don't get it. You know, and it's not good for cereal unless you like your cereal strain that you just have just the right amount of milk and then you let it drain out. I'm like, what is this good for? Right? And so the thing is, is we need to know what the purpose of the spoon is. Do you know what kind of spoon it was? It was an olive spoon. Who in the right mind has an olive spoon at an Airbnb? It sounds like a dirty trick. I'm like, yeah, let's put this olive spoon in here and see what they do. I'm like, what in the world? Okay? But here's the deal. Once we know what the purpose of the spoon is, we can use it rightly. And oftentimes we have misappropriated in our understanding of what the spoon is for, right? Or what sex is for in this case. You know, we often think that sex is an expression of who we truly are inside. You're a sexual being, that God made you that way, and therefore you need to be free to express it. And that version of you is an irrepressible, irreproachable uh, uh, kind of uh, thing. And so how dare anyone say that you're ever wrong in your sexual expression? How dare you ever uh, deny yourself and say no to sexually expressing yourself in any way that one wants to do it? 
you know, because we believe that is fundamentally who we are, you can't possibly be wrong. That's the way God created you. And Lady Gaga confirms it for us when she says, it doesn't matter if you love him or capital H-I-M. Just put your paws up because you were born this way, baby. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my own way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. And so what she is saying is, this is who you are. You are to express who you truly are. And how dare anyone say you are to do otherwise. That's the way it is. And so the trouble with that is it boils down the person to their sexuality. And why is this problematic? You know... If you are your sexuality, it, it is confusing. You just confuse the person with their sexuality. Then everything becomes a performance game. Because in the end, if you cannot perform sexually, or if you're not allowed to live your sexual life, then everyone is hindering you from it. And then the verdict of your life, the performance of your life, is failure. Uh, we see this today in uh, culture when we see something called the incel movement, what is a group of gentlemen or guys, I shouldn't say gentlemen, who believe that women are holding out on them and they are involuntarily celibate. Isn't that crazy? And this is a movement online. It is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. But this is true. They believe that women have to allow them to express themselves sexually. And so they perform violence on women. That is wild. But they've boiled themselves down to their sexuality. They're like, this is who I am. I need to express myself. And more than that, even the conservative thought leaders have boiled themselves, boiled it down to, down to um, uh, boiled personhood down to sexuality. We see this as a Christian leader who said this recently on Twitter. Americans are basically, by the millions, are giving up on the fact that to be human is to be a parent. Eventually, to take on that responsibility to get married and have children, to take on the responsibility of passing on civilization itself. Did he get the subtlety of this? Do you know what he just said? He inadvertently just boiled being human down to sexual expression, to having kids. Here's the, here's the deal. How do you think Jesus and Paul would feel about this? It's somehow like you're less human because you're not in a relationship and multiplying. Like, wait, how did, how did you do that? Okay? And so oftentimes Christianity boils it down to that too without thinking of it. But... You know, it, they, people will tell you that you can't live a fulfilled life without it. But if your sexuality is everything, then you got to perform. If you are your sexuality, then it has to happen. You have to do it. And if you're not, you're a failure. How'd you like to live that way? Can you imagine this? You know, uh, Christianity, though, teaches that you are loved regardless of your performance. 
You know, in, in both ways, they're asking sex to be something that it was not meant to be. They're asking sex, both one, to give you satisfaction, the deepest satisfaction of your heart, and two, they're asking sex to give you the validation of your heart at the same time. The satisfaction and the validation of your heart. I once had a married couple, number of years, uh, about to be married couple, and I was, I was doing their premarital counseling a number of years ago in New Mexico, and they came in, and I'm like, well, we're going to take a, take a few minutes, and we're going to talk about sex. All right, both of them were virgins. We're going to talk about it. We, she went in the other room, and then he, he sat there with me, and I couldn't believe it. He just started weeping. And I'm all like, what in the world is going on? I'm like, are you okay? And see, what he had bought into the lie was that somehow he was his sexuality and that his entire verdict of his life was on the line on marriage night. Because he had been watching pornography for a number of years and seeing that, he realized and thought to himself, I could never do that. I'll never be able to please her. And I'll be a failure of a husband for the rest of my life. I can't do that. Well, of course you can't do that. It's like watching Marvel and suddenly believing that you're Iron Man. It's not going to happen, bro. Okay? It just doesn't going to work like that. It's made up. You know? And what he'd done is he'd based his performance, he based his standard on something that was completely just blown out of proportion and it caused him to weep. And the sad thing is, his fiancée is in the other room crying too because she didn't know how in the world she was going to be able to please him. Because both of them believed that their, the verdict on their life was based on their performance and sexuality. And a lot of us have bought into that. That's our verdict in life. But here, in the Song of Solomon, we hear, have this refrain that goes over and over again. And it says, don't awaken love until it's time. And so what we see, though, is that sex is a sign. Sex is a sign. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Zoolander. Uh, I have even uh, named my wife's homeschooling the Holly Hoppy School for Kids Who Can't Read Good. Um, <laughs> And do other things good, too. Uh, so so there, here it is, the Zoolander school for kids who can't read good. And, and Derek Zoolander is just a complete nimrod because your, your, uh, your brain and your IQ is directly proportional to how good-looking you are. And he's ridiculously good-looking, so it's like really, really bad. And so he, they bring in this model, and like, here it is, Derek, the Derek Zoolander school for kids who can't read good. And then he, gets, he looks at it. And he gets upset, and he throws it over, and he says, what? Is this a school for ants? It's going to have to be at least three times bigger. You know? and, and everyone looks at him. Why? Because he's confused that thing for a sign. It, it's just a sign. It's just a model. And you can't confuse it. And so the thing about sex is it's just a sign. It's a model. Okay? And you notice it needs to be three times bigger. And the refrain of this is, don't awaken love until it's time. Signs always point to a reality that is bigger, grander, and, and, and is uh, more uh, majestic and grander than you will ever need and ever want to know. And it, it hits you. you know, so it's promoting the idea that sex is best suited in design for within the confines of marriage. And so sex works as a sign of the commitment. 
Because when you make the commitment in marriage, you say, I give all of myself. You know everything about me, and I give it to you, and I put myself in your hands. And the, sexual, the, the marriage partner says the same thing to the other person. I commit myself to you. And so sex is one giving themselves for the sake of the other, completely and unashamedly naked and before each other. And so it is a sign to nourish what is true, what is good, what you've already done with your whole person. And if you're not giving of yourself and the whole person by telling them the truth about you, letting them know you, letting them know your fears and everything, then sex is going to be hindered. Because sex is a sign of that commitment. And so that's why it's important to get it in the right order. You know, and some of us, we're probably like, I have, I've messed this up. And we'll get to that in a, sec- a second. But Solomon 8, or here in Song of Solomon 8, we see this covenant sign, a sign of renewal. And it's pointing to this deeper reality of God and his commitment to his people. And so signs always point deeper into something greater. So in uh, chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, oh, he would be utterly despised. You see, the thing is, with the, the whole of the Bible is God committing himself to a people and he gives them sensible signs to know that he had committed himself and it was under the punishment of death if anyone violated it. And so here we see this punishment. There's a set me as a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm. It's a seal. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. If anyone violates this, the sword of judgment comes down upon you. So it points to a greater reality. And notice that there's a chorus of people, witnesses, who are singing, how good is this love? How good is this? They're singing it over and over again. And the world is a, pub, it is a world of watching. It is seeing what has happened. And so those of us, though, who have failed sexually, including me, what do we remember? God doesn't love you because of your performance. You are not set doomed to live on the frontage road of God's highway for sexuality. No. How strong is God's love for you? It is as strong as death, into which sex is only a glimmer, a spark of the reality of God's self-giving love, that he has given all of himself to the person for you. And on the cross, we see that Jesus has given all of himself, bearing everything that he is for you. And he doesn't say, Get your act together. No. He says, and it is shown, that he wants you. 
you are his beloved. The beloved is yours. And so what we know and what we've seen in things like marriage is that people who love each other and want each other, it is a sign of God's love. Of God's love who can see past through sins. Love so strong that it can abolish sins. Love so strong that it can get rid of shame. Love so strong that it allows you to be completely vulnerable and open and say, this is all of me. I can't believe you'll still have me. I confess. And on the cross, we see Jesus, God saying, he wants you. All of you. All of you. And when we embrace that on the heart, we know that we are desired. Even if we've messed up, when we embrace that on the heart, that we're wanted, desired, and the verdict is in, you are loved. You are beautiful in his eyes. It will heal you. It will heal you. And it will change you. And it is good. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, the Song of Solomon points us to your never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love, your tenacious love that won't ever stop. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would transform our hearts to know that we are loved even if we messed up. You come to get us. And you want us. We may fear and we may be ashamed of all the things we have done, but you still want us. Now that is fierce and strong love. Help us, Lord, to know that love on the heart, to taste it in this bread and wine. Help us at this time to see you and to be drunk with love, the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.